Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I, before we dive into the Sermon on the Mount again this morning, I just want to recognize Steve and Janet Toy. We're not, at the, not able to be at the meeting last week, but we, we invited them in as members anyway. And, uh, but I think, I think we need to welcome Steve and Janet Toy as members to the Valley Free Church. We are glad you're part of our family. So, Aaron Ralston is an experienced mountain climber, and to say that uh, is an understatement. He stood at, he stood at I, I, I guess the number is 59 of the highest peaks in Colorado. All of the 14ers, as they call them out there, he's climbed many of them solo. And uh, just to do something different than everybody else, he climbed many of them in the wintertime solo, without a cell phone, without any safety measures like that. He just, he just climbed the mountains. Nothing better, in, for, as far as he's concerned, there's nothing better than standing at the top of a 14er, listening to the eagles and listening to the wolves all alone. He's a remarkable and courageous young man. One, one morning in April, I believe, in 2003, Ralston decided to hike the Blue John Canyon in Utah. It would be a, a bike ride up the canyon. He was going to drop his bike off, and then he was going to walk back. And uh, he's going to walk back through the sculpted sandstone bluffs on that Saturday morning. The round trip for everything would take about eight hours. He didn't think it was a big deal, and so he didn't tell his roommates where he was going or what he was doing. He just left. He normally would tell somebody what he's doing, and especially if he's climbing a mountain. But this day, he just went off. So he went out there. He, he rode his bike out there, and he left his bike behind, and, and he used his climbing gear to climb down uh, into, the, into the canyon, into the valley. As it happened, he was climbing down a very narrow crevice. Apparently, it was only about three feet wide. Now, I think about that. I'm a little claustrophobic, so I don't know that I would do that. But he's in this very narrow crevice, and he had to negotiate around a huge, they estimate, 800-pound boulder. As he negotiated his way around this 800-pound boulder in a three-foot-wide crevasse, the rock shifted. If you know the story, you know that the rock uh, grabbed his arm, and he couldn't get out. So his arm is stuck between an 800-pound boulder and the edge of this crevice, and he can't move, and nobody knows where he is. So he managed to get himself into a standing-up position so he could, he could maneuver a little bit, and he used his climbing gear, his ropes and stuff, to get around the boulder, and, and he tried to do some kind of a pulley system or whatever, I don't know exactly, but he used his climbing gear, tried to budge that rock, but it wouldn't move. It would not let go of his arm. So for five days, he remained trapped in this little three-foot-wide crevice. He was unable to move, and apparently in the, in the nighttime, uh, during the night, it would get down to 30 degrees. After three days, his water supply ran out. At the end of five days, he knew that res rescue crews would never find him in this little crevice in the middle of nowhere, especially since nobody knew where he went. He was in a desperate situation, and with no chance of defeating the boulder, boulder Ralston was left with one choice. That was to amputate his arm. 
I'm not clear on all the details, but I understand that he first broke his arm beneath the elbow, and then he proceeded to use his pocket knife to sever the rest of his leg. So he took out his, his first aid kit, he applied a tourniquet, and then he had to rappel down where he, was, where he was trying to go to begin with. He had to rappel down this crevice, and then he walked for five miles until he came across two hikers that helped him out. They walked with him ways until a rescue helicopter that was looking for him finally flew over and found them, took him to the hospital. They say he walked into the hospital under his own power. It's an amazing story of, what, of, of doing something that you just have to do in order to survive, to not succumb to life-threatening circumstances. In our text today, Jesus gives a radical teaching to his followers. The Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's, he's coming right at these truths, and, and, and we're finding out, aren't we, that these truths are, are, are difficult looks in the mirror. To put it bluntly, Jesus tells us that if anything in our lives leads to sin, if anything's going to cause us to end up in hell, then we need to take drastic measures to deal with it. And so he says, if your hand or your eye causes you to sin, what's he say? Cut it off. Gouge it out. Are you ready for this today? This Sermon on the Mount teaching is hazardous to our complacency. The master teacher, the source of all eternal truth, is casting his gaze on our lives into our hearts, and he's showing us things that we work hard to avoid seeing. So last week, he showed us that murder is not just an act, a one-time deal, but it's a result of anger residing in our hearts. This week, he'll show us that adultery is not just an act, a momentary infraction, but a result of the lustful intent, the lustful intent that too often finds a home in our imagination. So if you're ready... Let's pull up a blanket on the side of that mountain. Let's lean into the voice of the master. I'm going to warn you this morning. His teaching is radical and it's penetrating. But the freedom he offers is unlike anything you've ever experienced. So let's dive in. Matthew chapter 5. Let me read the whole passage, and then we'll go back verse by verse, starting at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body, that, then that your whole body would be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body would go into hell. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus is teaching his disciples 
the, the values and the laws of the kingdom that he's, he's bringing to them, the kingdom of heaven. And as he did so, he was being questioned about what his opinion was, what his loyalty was, what his allegiance was to the law, the Old Testament, the Mosaic law. Was he throwing over the law? Was he throwing over the Ten Commandments? Was he throwing over everything that Moses had brought to them? That was the question. That was the challenge to him. And his answer is, is a clear no. And we've talked about this, but in, in verse 17, he makes it clear that he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And to help us understand this dynamic, he goes on through the rest of chapter 5 to give us examples of what he means by fulfilling the law, by completing the law, by explaining the law in its fullness. His first stop was the commandment concerning murder. The correct teaching of it concerned the issue of anger in the heart. His next stop, his next topic is that of adultery. So let's look. Let's read verse 27 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now that sounds pretty straightforward. Stay home. As Proverbs 5.15 says, drink water from your own cistern. We know that Jesus wasn't concerned with the law itself. He was, he, the law that was given on the mountain, the Ten Commandments and the whole law that Moses brought, that God gave to him, Jesus isn't trying to overturn that. He's not concerned about that. What he is concerned about is the interpretation that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had added to it. They were distorting the law of God. And so when he, when he says, you have heard it said, he's referring to the, to the law itself, but he's also referring to the religious leaders. And Well, you know, they've told you this. They've said that. And, and over the years, over the generations, they had distorted the teaching of the law. So how had, how had the interpretation gone sideways? Well, let's start by defining the issue. What, what is adultery? Adultery is pure and simple. is sexual relations with someone outside your marriage relationship. Somebody other than your spouse. And especially with someone else's spouse. That's adultery. And I think probably unlike the day of Jesus, we have the issue of pornography going on. And I would add that in. Any kind of immorality, including pornography, constitutes a third person in your marriage. And that's adultery. That's adultery. Scripture also uses the word adultery as a code word for religious infidelity. Jeremiah 3, 8, and 9 paints a vivid picture of both Israel and Judah who are happily abandoning God and they're going after other gods. God calls that adultery as well. You'll see that in the scripture. He uses more words than adultery to describe that, but we won't go into that here. So you get the idea. It's, it's something. It's, it's a sin that is outside the boundaries of what God intends it breaks down the beauty of marriage. It breaks down the beauty of God's design and purpose for it. For example, God holds up the sanctity of marriage. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, and, and we see lots of images of it in the Scriptures. We see the glory of its purpose in his kingdom. He upholds his, the, the people of Israel as the wife of God, that marital relationship. When, when Moses received the law on the mountain, when the, when the, when the people stood 
off to the side and, and saw the mountain quaking and, and lightning and thunder. It was, it was said to be the marriage between Israel and God. It was said to be a marriage ceremony. God holds marriage in high esteem. It's his design. He holds up the church as the bride of Christ, and, and, and that's, our, that's our future. That's our hope, thinking about being, becoming the bride of Christ and going to the marriage supper of the Lamb when we get into heaven. The book, Song of Psalms, is, is, is dedicated to the beauty of the husband and wife relationship, almost blushingly. And when we, in, when we read in Revelation, we read about the, the beauty and the glory and the splendor of the city coming down out of heaven, the city of Jerusalem. We see the glory of that, and we look forward to our eternity in heaven. We see, and, 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 and John saw this image of the city descending out of heaven, and it was, it was beautiful. It was glorious. And, and when you read the description of that in Revelation 21, about the streets of gold and all the, all the, all the, the emeralds and the, the jewels and, and the beauty of it, it's breathtaking. But when the angel of the Lord described it to John, what did he describe the city as? He described it as the bride of Christ. You see, God holds up this image of marriage as a beautiful thing. It, it tells the story of our relationship with him. This, the Sermon on the Mount is full of contrasts. And I, I hope you see the contrast here. Adultery is against God's law. It's against his plan it's against his heart's desire for his people. When he says, I've come to give you life and gave you so you can have it to the full. This adultery detracts from that. Adultery breaks the trust of that. Adultery shatters that image. When we pray for God's best in our lives, we never, ever pray for an act of adultery. It's vile. <clears throat> it's wretched. And it corrupts everything that God has for us compared to the sanctity and the beauty and the glory of marriage, adultery is a perversion of his life. That's, that's the comparison. The religious leaders, as we have said before, tried to package this, this command into something that they could manage, something that, that they could contain. They boiled it down to the act of adultery itself. If you didn't do the deed, then you're not guilty of adultery. That's, that's it, pure and simple. But they took it even further. They said if a woman stepped out, if a woman entered into an adulterous relationship, she should be punished in the most severe way. This is an interpretation. But if the man goes out and violates a commandment, his wife couldn't say anything. No punishment. How would that work in our culture today? But again, it's, it's easy definitions. That's what the Pharisees were shooting for. The religious leaders, they wanted something they wanted parameters that were clear. You knew when you violated the law. The problem of, of all this is that it, it also leads to smugness. It leads to arrogance. It leads to boasting on how I have kept the law. I can imagine the disciples as, as Jesus turned to this topic on that hill that day. As he, as he talked about adultery, I imagine the disciples were sitting there and I'm wondering if some of them, if not all of them, wouldn't have said at that moment, well, I've never been unfaithful to my wife. I think I'll run over to the hot dog stand and get something while he's talking about this. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Because we can manage it. I can handle this. I got this. 
But then we get to Matthew 5, 28, and Jesus says this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in your heart. In your heart. Now, a few weeks ago, I went and had my eyes examined. I got new glasses. Nobody noticed, but that's okay. They're pretty nice. And, the, and the, the nurse said, would you mind if I dilated your eyes today? And I foolishly said, no, that's okay. Go ahead and do it. And apparently, opening up the pupil of your eye when they dilate it creates a way for the doctor to look inside of the eye. And I was fascinated by this. And so I couldn't help myself. I said, so what do you see in there? What do you see on the inside of an eye? She went on to explain it, and, she, and she, she, she let me know that cataracts are in my future. And um, she said, oh, not for a long time. Don't worry about it. But it's back there. It's, it's forming. And I said, so the seeds are in there. You can see the seeds. And she said, yeah, but don't worry about it. It's a long ways off. She could see all of that. It's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's taking what is obvious to us all. He's taking, he's taking what we can all see, and he's exposing it farther as he, as he goes into the depths of our heart. He can see in there like we can't. And he's exposing not only the sins, I'll say it again, he's, not, he's exposing not only the sins of my life, but more importantly, he's exposing the sin of my life. So just as murder found its roots in anger, so adultery finds its seeds in lust the wandering eye. Jesus is taking the act of adultery and deepening it to the level of desire. And I would, I'd say it like this, he's taking it to the level of gazing. So I can hear all the questions. How long is too long to gaze? Isn't that, isn't that the way we think? That's like the Pharisees thought. Okay, let's, let's put a time frame on it. If it's longer than five seconds, then you're gazing. Then, boom, you're, you're, you violate or if you, here's the rule we go by, right? If you take a second look, I, th I think this is a pretty good rule, actually. But if you take a second look, then you've crossed a line. The first one doesn't count. But we like to put rules around it. I like to put measurements around it. There's a, there's a story, a, a pretty common story, of a young man who was sitting on a city bus, and he was, I don't know if he was with a pastor or a priest or something, but, but there was a, a, a pastor sitting next to him. And at the next bus stop, a very beautiful woman got on the bus. And the young man, quite naturally, was consumed with her beauty. He could not stop staring. At the same time, he knew that the pastor was sitting right there. And it's, that's, we kind of have that benefit. If somebody knows your pastor, it seems to moderate things just a little bit sometimes. He knew the pastor was sitting there. He was embarrassed by his staring. She was so beautiful. Finally, the pastor broke the awkward silence and the gazing. And he said this. He said, you know, sometimes God must be very, very proud of his creation. What do you suppose was going through that young man's mind as he stared at that woman? Don't meditate on that too long. You see, Jesus is less concerned with the time limits. He's less concerned about the length of the gazing than he is with the intent of our heart. 
So let me read it again. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and here it is, with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Lustful intent. The King James Version goes farther by saying to lust after her. It's, it seems to indicate an action. It seems to, uh, it seems to indicate a desire, that, a desire that would include taking steps towards the woman. Chrysostom, early church father, put it this way, it's like kindling the furnace within you. You see, throwing wood on the fire of lust doesn't take five minutes of gazing. It can happen in just moments. Lust begins in the eye. Going further, the furnace room of lust is in our imaginations. So here's another contrast. God has given us a vivid imagination. It's a gift from God. It's, it's part of who we are. I think it's, it's part of the image of God stamped on our nature. It's, it's our imagination. With our imagination, we create art. We, we, we build buildings. We design buildings. We, we invent new things. We see beauty and possibility where it previously didn't exist, all because of our imagination. We say, what if? But lust, and here's the comparison, here's the contrast, lust distorts the imagination. What has God given is now used against us. It's now used to imagine something that God never intended. We imagine adultery long before we commit the act. And Jesus says, and it's very clear, at the end of that road is sin. And at the end of that road is death. And Jesus gets even more specific. He gets even more harsh. Not politically correct at all. He says the end of the road is hell. So Jesus upends the teaching of the Pharisees by expanding the issue beyond the physical act of adultery and equating it to the very thought. The thought and the action are the same thing as far as Jesus is concerned. So just letting the thought capture our imagination is just as bad as doing the deed itself. I told you this wasn't easy stuff. Let's go on to what I'm calling kingdom wisdom, verses 29 and 30. So Jesus said this. Okay, he laid out the case. He says that the act and the thought are equal. Both are adultery. And he says this. If your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body would go into hell. Praise the Lord, there's an escape route from this. There's a fix. There's a solution. There's some way of handling this sin that's going on in the depths of my heart. The, the solution is actually quite simple. If your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out. It's easy. Just do it. I mentioned a church father, Chrysostom, earlier. Another church father, Origen, was said to have emasculated himself to avoid any appearance of evil when he was teaching women. Some say, I couldn't confirm this, but some say that he he cut off his right hand in response to this teaching. 
He literally cut it off. But as I think we'll see that this is a distorted understanding of Jesus' teaching. Why? Why? Because if, if your right hand or your right eye, and, and they say that right hand and right eye are, are, are privileged, they're the power center, that we consider those to be the main instruments. Some take it so far as to say what you, what you see, eliminate what you see, and if your hand... If your hand causes you to do something, then eliminate whatever it is you're doing. That's how we picture the hand and the eye. But the problem is, if you take it literally, then you should cut off your left hand as well. And you should gouge out your left eye as well, because that won't solve the problem. You have to keep going. Reminds me of the Monty Python movie, where they're having the sword fight, and he says, I'll, I'll fight you with one arm, and I'll fight you with no arms. And Sorry, bad illustration. That just came to me, just like that. That was my imagination. I can fight you with one arm. And if... <laughs> okay, now we're all going to go on Netflix and rent that movie. I don't even know what movie it was. Um, where was I? You cut off the right hand, and Jesus limited it to the right hand and the right eye. So, but we know that that doesn't eliminate the problem. So you take off the left hand and the left eye, and then you, but you still have a problem because you still have your mind's eye. You still have your imagination. So we can't take it literally. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day weren't far from the understanding of origin. They would have said that it was the problem of the hand or the eye. They wouldn't have connected it to a heart issue. So their responses included making women dress in ways that weren't appealing, that weren't attractive, dress in ways that covered up their form and their beauty. It, 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 could, it could mean not getting married. It could mean committing to a life of celibacy. It could mean joining a monastery. Anything that gets us out of the cycle of this, this sin, this, this adultery, this our minds and our, our actions, being, our behavior, our decisions being drawn to these things. What do I do to stop it? So the question is, if he's using hyperbole to emphasize the issue, then what is the truth that he's uncovering for us? So are you ready for another contrast? Jesus gives us a choice between God and sin, between heaven and hell, between godliness and wickedness. The truth is that if something is a hindrance to all that God has for us, then we need to deal with it. We need to remove it from our lives. Anything that rises up because of sin or leads us to sin leads us away from God. The question we need to ask when our eyes are wandering into lust or our hands are involved in ungodly activities is whether or not the trade-off is worth it. And Jesus gives it to us in stark terms. Heaven or hell? Eternal life or eternal death? See, I told you this wasn't easy. Is it worth it? And we know the answer is no. But is it worth it in that moment? Let's go to, let's, let's go to what I'm calling life wisdom. As I, I considered this sermon over the last week, 
I, I thought it would be more of a discussion on pornography and immorality. I, I had, had all my notes out, and I've got a lot of notes on these topics. I had them all out. I was ready to go down that road. But I see now it's, it's more than that. You see, those, that's the, the sins part of it. I think Jesus is using this as an example to show us what sin is and how it has thoroughly corrupted our hearts. Let me make some observations. Let's talk about this idea of sins versus sin. The underlying issue is that of sin in our heart. We often speak of, and this is, I think this is part of our, our, our nature, this is part of our, our bent, just like the Pharisees, we want to go to the rules and the measurements and the quantifications of all of this. And if I do this, then that, and if this is, this is good and this is bad, and I can draw a line here, and I can measure this, and I can, I can safely say, well, I've never done that. But brothers and sisters, I think Jesus would tell us that these are just the symptoms of the real issue, the symptoms of sin. The sin in our heart, the sin in our heart defies measurement. It infects everything. Somebody gave an illustration like this, said, I can, I can walk into a room and oh, I know somebody who had an emergency root canal last week. So before they could get into the dentist, 24 hours went by of absolute horrible pain. Maybe you've experienced that. Well, I know that there's a problem there because it's evident. And I know that there's a fix for it. Go to the dentist and have them clean it out and fix it. I know that I can also walk into a cancer ward and I can see people who look absolutely healthy. I can work with somebody who has a very, very bad disease and they feel fine and they're operating just like nothing ever happened. And sometimes we do that for a long time before we even realize we're sick. That's the difference between sins and sin. Sin is, is operating, and it's there, and we can't see it all the time. But it's corrupting, and it's devastating. When God is at work in us, it's to bring about holiness and righteousness, life in Jesus. So, so here's the deal. When we wink at sin, when we click that mouse when we throw a lustful gaze, when we imagine thoughts of adultery and immorality, when we read that erotic romance novel, we underestimate the power and the consequences of sin in our life. It leads us away from Christ. It leads us away from his life. It's a sin problem, not a sin's problem. Sin problem. It's a nature problem. The other thing I observe is, is the idea of the contrast of compromise versus godliness. And somehow we convince ourselves that a little bit of sin is okay. Just a look won't hurt. If I, if I imagine that, if I, if I camp on that for a moment, if I, if I let that imagination run wild for just a moment, nobody knows it won't hurt. One night away from home, that's, that's no big deal. Being alone with someone other than my spouse won't lead to anything. 
Letting my spiritual life slide won't, won't weaken my defenses. This, these are the things we tell ourselves. Living together without marriage is not a big deal to God. He thinks nothing of it. But discipleship, followership, is a matter of denying my temptations in my nature. Followers of Christ are not driven by desires and emotions, but by commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My life is oriented to the love of Christ and my love for him, my vision for his life and his eternity. There's no room in that for winking or for compromise. And then I see a comparison between lust and love. I, I, I saw on Facebook um, somebody I'm connected with, a, a young person, made a statement on Facebook that in the church we have not talked about sex and that uh, we have shamed on it and we have said that anybody who has relationship, physical relationships outside of marriage before you're married uh, will never recover from that sin. I was distressed by that posting. So I want to state clearly this morning that sex, sex is a wonderful gift from God. God designed it. God designed our human bodies for it. And it's amazing. So it's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, let me tell you how, how amazing the body is. Let me read this. and I've read this in several places. Talking about the human body when it comes to sexual relationships. Listen to this. The brain is wired for sexual pleasure as well as sexual fidelity and rugged, faithful commitment. Did you hear that? The body is wired for those things. As a result of various forms of contact, from skin-to-skin -skin contact to sexual intercourse, the brain releases dopamine, which is a neuro neurochemical that says, wow, this is pleasurable. This is good. Dopamine creates brain pathways, tunnels of of pleasure, if you will, that tell a person to do this again. And those neurochemical passages make it easier to do it again. And thus, any kind of sexual contact begins to create the desire for more sexual connection with that same person. In addition to dopamine, the brain releases ox oxytocin and vasopressin, which tell a woman that the man is hers. Did you hear that? This is a new, new thing for me. Just in the last few months, I've learned this. Tells a woman that the man is hers and the man that the woman is his. This kind of bonding is created every time a human has any kind of sexual experience. The feeling of guilt or dirtiness that arises in a human who experiences sex outside the bounds of biblical morals or fidelity is the brain's way of saying, I'm confused. All of this is to say this. Jesus prohibits illicit sexual encounters, whether physical 
or fantasy. Because, because God has wired us for sexual fidelity and lifelong rugged commitments of love to one person. God created our bodies that way. It's not just a good idea. It's the way he designed us. And the author goes on to say this, hearts are wired to brains and brains are wired to commitment. Brothers and sisters, there is no room for a third person in your marriage. No room at all. And so let me, so then the natural question is, well, what do I do if, I, if I'm caught? What, if I, what do I do if I have my foot in this trap? What do I do if my world is spinning around and, and I've actually stepped outside or I'm trapped in pornography or my thoughts and my imagination is going wild? How, how do I stop this thing? That's a big question, but let me just take it from this passage today. I think the first thing that the Scripture tells us to do, our first line of defense, is to run. Run. When I was a young man, about 130 years ago, First Lady Nancy Reagan created an anti-drug campaign where she urged the people to what? Just say whole world laughed. It was too simplistic. What a crazy idea. Just say no. Yet the Bible seems to indicate that the first line of defense for us is just that. Run. Get out of the situation. Flee the temptation. Psalm 101 says this, I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart Within my house, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Or how about Luke chapter 11, verse 33? No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. And then Jesus goes on to say this, Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy... Your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The eye. And then there are several passages in Paul's letters where he uses the word flee. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from idolatry. Flee from all these things. Flee youthful passions. See, <coughs> the first line of defense seems to be, get out of there. Run. And if your foot is already stuck in it, then just say no from this point forward. Run. If you're in a relationship outside of your marriage, stop it today. Whenever I hear that somebody is in marriage counseling and their marriage is separated, the first question I ask is, is there a third person involved? Because if there's a third person involved, there's a small chance that anything's going to happen. There's no room for a third person. Must be cut off. 
Another way that we can respond to these things is with accountability. And again, I'm shamelessly plugging our Celebrate Recovery program that offers that to us. Accountability, the ability to say to one another, this is where I am today. And then along with that goes confession. Confession. I think I have a Bonhoeffer quote up here someplace. When I go to another believer to confess, I am going to God. I never thought about it this way, but, but when we confess our sins one to another, when we're transparent about it, what, what happens with that? First of all, the, the, my imagination goes wild and things get crazy in my head and, I st- and all of a sudden this, this thing starts to grow and grow and grow and we say it becomes a monster in our head or this little tiny seed of thought becomes now a mountain and a monster, right? The second I confess it to somebody, the air has just popped right out of that thing. And it's shrunk down to its proper size. But the beautiful thing of this, and Bonhoeffer brings it out, is that when we're hearing the confession of someone else, we have the opportunity to, to speak for God in that moment. Because I need to hear that I'm forgiven. I need to hear that God has made a way for me. And you, as a brother and sister in Christ, can say, I hear your confession. We don't have a confessional booth in the back of our church. We don't practice that here, and I, I wonder if we should. We need to find another way to do it. We need to do it with one another. We need to have the courage and the transparency to confess our sins to one another. And we need to have the, the understanding that we are, we are God's representatives in that moment to say, I forgive you. God forgives you. That's an amazing thing that happens with confession. Another way we can respond is by, by inflow. And again, we get accused of being too simplistic. But if I don't have God's word flowing and operating in my heart, then my imagination is going to take me in other places. If I, if I don't have the disciplines operating in my life, a prayer and meditation and scripture and community, fellowship, if I don't have these things circling around in my life, then pretty soon I'm going to be standing outside here. And what happens when we're away by ourselves? That's when the temptations fall. Inflow. And then finally, I think if you're stuck in these things, especially pornography, you need to seek out a, a, a counselor. You need to seek out a purity ministry. And I would commend to you this morning, puredesire.org. And I looked at that this week, and they have a lot of resources that you can just download. For example, they have an assessment on there so you can determine the depth of, 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 of whether you're even trapped in this or not. And that's a downloadable resource that you can have. They've got great tools, and the, the Free Church has partnered with it, that ministry for this very reason. Let me close with this thought. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. All the exhortations to just live better, to just follow the rules, they all failed before Christ arrived. When we look at this topic and we look at the the issues that Jesus is bringing out in Matthew chapter 5, we realize, and we talked about this last week, we realize that we come to a place The law brings us to a place and says, this is your problem, but it doesn't have a solution. And that's why, brothers and sisters, when we come to this topic, 
we don't, we don't come to this topic helpless. We don't come to this topic without an opportunity to be redeemed. But the redemption is in Jesus Christ. The redemption is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And I think we need to understand that, that we must be born again because this is a heart issue. And the only way to reset our hearts is to be born again in Jesus Christ, to accept his, his sacrifice for my sin. He paid the penalty for my sin so that I could run from it. He paid the penalty so that I could live his life. This kind of a conversation today should cause us to go and embrace the cross and embrace the redemption that Jesus Christ has bought for us. And when I, when I think about dealing with these issues and I think about gazing too long or, or clicking too many times or going too many places on the internet or, or, or considering opportunities with somebody else's wife or husband, I need to ask myself, what's the weight? What's the measure? What's the value of my soul? And Jesus says, if I go down this road, it winds up in hell. So I asked the question, what's the value of my soul? And Jesus answered that question by paying with his life so that my soul can be redeemed. So if you feel like you're trapped this morning, if you feel like this issue is just overwhelming you, then you need to know that you need to run to Jesus. You need to run to Jesus. He has already redeemed it, he's already redeemed you, and he will lead you into a new place. Amen. Amen. Let me pray, and then the worship team's going to lead us out. Lord Jesus, thank you for this hope, because when we look at this topic, it's, 